Y'all stay open to uh, Matthew. I was thinking about this passage, and I was thinking, you know, one of the, the key differences between older generations and younger generations is that older generations know street names, and younger generations do not. <laughs> it's because older generations had to know them in order to know directions, be able to give people directions, things like that. It's still how they give people directions to this day. So earlier this year, my Meemaw, who I love, sweet little old lady. She's not always that sweet, but we do love her. So she called me and she said, hey, Papa Couch is at his brother's house, but his truck hasn't been running properly. So could you go and meet him at his brother's house and then follow him to our house to make sure he makes it safely? And I said, yeah, of course I can, Meemaw. That's not a problem. Just give me the address. And she said, okay, here's what you're going to do. You're going to take a left onto Saluda Dam Road. You're going to go for about half a mile. Then you're going to take a left onto Linhart. Then you're going to come to a four-way stop. And then you're going to want to go straight. And now you're going to want to be paying attention. I said, hold on, wait a second. I, I just need the address. She's like, well, you don't know the address. That's why I'm giving you directions. And I was like, yes, I know. But Meemaw, here's the thing. I was like, I love you, but I've only recognized two names you've said so far, and I'm not going to recognize any others. I promise you that. So just give me the address. And if you know my Meemaw, if you've met her, she's just this little cute little ball of anxiety all the time. And so she starts having a meltdown. Well, why did I even call you in the first place? You know, there was no point. I should have called someone. Who's going to be able to help at this point? I don't know how he's going to get home. I was like, Meemaw, Meemaw, just give me the address. That's all I need. And she's like, don't you need directions? I was like, no, Meemaw, I'm just going to put it in my phone and my phone is going to take me right there. And she's like, but how? I was like, Meemaw, that is what GPS is. You don't need all these names anymore. I've got GPS right there in the phone. But see, that's what happens, right? You have an old way of doing things. And she comes from that old age, right? The paper maps age where everybody, you know, used to have paper maps in their car. Some people still do on this front row over here. But, but <laughs> yeah, yeah. So look, that's the age she came from. Paper maps and memorizing road names and telling people how to get from point A to point B. But what happens? A new era comes along with new technologies and developments And that's what we have now. We have GPS, which is a much better way of getting from point A to point B. New eras come along with these developments, and they show the old ways to be deficient. In fact, the new ways take over, and it shows that the old ways are now obsolete. They're not needed anymore. And that's exactly what happens in this passage. That's exactly what happens in the ministry of Jesus. Jesus comes on scene, and his big message is all these old ways of functioning and trying to relate to God, and trying to please God, they're gone. They are passing away, and I am bringing about a new way. A new way of functioning, a new way of relating to God, a new way of pleasing God. And, you know, he encountered what we encounter today. What happens when an old technology goes away and a new one comes along? Or or what happens when an old way of doing something is replaced with a new way of doing something? Everybody just accepts it immediately, right? No, there's resistance. People cling to the past. I am 100% convinced that my brother-in-law, bless his heart, Bill McKinney, if he could still have a pager and a rotary phone, he would. That man clings to the past like no other, okay? He lives in the past. That's what happens when there's an old way of doing something and it gets replaced by a new way, there's resistance. And that's exactly what Jesus encountered in this passage. He's telling these people that there's a new way of doing stuff, and they are resisting him. 
You see, they had a religious system that they were comfortable with. They had a religious system that was familiar to them. And so they were totally fine with Jesus going about around town telling people about God because they thought he's going to tell them about God and then he's going to send them to us because he wants them to be super religious like us and he's just getting us more people. And Jesus goes, that's not what I'm doing at all. In fact, I want us to understand that same thing today because I think too many people get caught in that same trap where they start thinking a lot about God and rather than thinking about what Jesus is actually bringing and saying, they start thinking about all the religious things they're going to have to start doing. And here's what I want you to know this morning. Jesus didn't come to make us more religious. He came to make us truly righteous. That's his new way of of bringing about this new Kingdom righteousness. Jesus didn't come to make people more religious. He came to make people truly righteous. And we throw around those words a lot in church, right? We throw around the words religion and righteous and all this kind of stuff. And so my question is this. If you're studying this passage and you know that's his point, well then what's the difference, right? What's the difference between being religious and being righteous? What is the difference between the old way of religion and the new way of kingdom righteousness? And as we start the passage, one of the big differences that we're going to see is it's the difference between what a person does and what's actually in that person's heart. I want you to look at verse 14. Notice what the Bible says. Then the disciples of John came to him, Jesus, saying, Why do we and the Pharisees fast, but your disciples do not fast? So there's a complaint, right? You have the disciples of John the Baptist, and they are still following him. And John has already said, hey, listen, he's already pointed to Jesus and said, behold, the Lamb of God who comes to take away the sins of the world. John has already pointed out that Jesus is the Messiah, and he's taught his disciples to know Jesus is the Messiah. But then they start looking at Jesus and his disciples, and they notice, hey, wait a second. They're not doing all the things that we do. What's going on here? There's, a, there's actually kind of a little a complaint, and it's not just a complaint, it's an accusation in their question. They're not just like, oh, hey, curiosity, uh, why aren't you fasting? They're, they're really saying, if you actually are the Messiah, and you're supposed to be holier than everyone else, then why aren't you doing the religious things that we do? Why aren't you doing the religious things the Pharisees do? Why aren't you doing the religious things that we have always done for all of our existence? And it's important for you to understand That the Bible only ever commands there to be one fast, and that's to happen once a year on the Day of Atonement. That's the only one that God had ever commanded. But by the time of the Pharisees, the Pharisees looked at what they did. They just always looked at the law of God, and they said, yeah, there's a lot of laws there, but there could be more. Those are pretty strict, but they could be stricter. And so they constantly added more laws, and they tried to enforce those laws on other people. So by the time of the Pharisees, they were requiring a weekly fast, actually twice a week. On Mondays and Thursdays, they required people to fast like them. And so don't miss what they're trying to do here. They're trying to hold God accountable to the standards of man. They are upset because they have a man-made tradition that no one else is following, like Jesus and his disciples, and they're upset that no one is following their man-made traditions, even though they're trying to act like it's a command from God. That doesn't happen anymore, does it, folks? Come on, y'all been in a Baptist church long enough to know that happens all the time, right? 
If you are in a Baptist church or any other church for that matter, and they've always done something a certain way, but that thing's not commanded in Scripture, so you don't do that thing anymore, is everybody okay with it? No, of course not. You can't change things up. You can't do things like that, even though it's not commanded in Scripture. It's just a man-made tradition. Well, why don't we do this thing that we've always done? Pretty simple. It's not in the Bible. It's not a command. So we have freedom to do it a different way. You know, it's just one thing to do. But, you know, we're not going to get hung up on that. So anyways, all right, notice what's happening here. Jesus, he could have responded in a lot of different ways. He could have said, yeah, well, I don't fast like you guys fast because God never commanded us to fast in that way. But he doesn't. He takes this opportunity to teach the people. He takes the opportunity to teach them that our actions need to correspond with what's actually in our hearts. Because that's something they were missing here. So look at verse 15. He says... Can the wedding guests mourn as long as the bridegroom is with them? See, I love Jesus. Anytime you ask him a question, he very rarely gives you a direct answer. He normally just answers a question with a question, and it's awesome. So they're like, hey, why don't you fast like we do? And he says, well, can the wedding guests mourn while the bridegroom is with them? The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast. So so what's going on here? Well, obviously, Jesus is comparing himself to a groom on his wedding day. And his bride, the church, his people are the bride on a wedding day. And he's saying, now is a time of joy. Now is a time of celebration. It is no time for mourning. Because what was fasting? Fasting was associated with mourning, wasn't it? You would normally fast during a time of mourning and sorrow. And so they're like, hey, why aren't you fasting? And Jesus says, because we're at a wedding, brother. (laughs) This is no funeral. Why on earth would we be doing this mournful action during a time of celebration? I mean, I love weddings. I didn't used to. I'd never really been to one before my own. But now I enjoy preaching them a whole lot more than funerals. So I would rather be at a wedding. And um, we just had one last week, right? Mazan and Kathy, and it was beautiful. But here's what I want you to imagine, right? One of the key moments that is built up to in a wedding is that moment when they're going to open the doors and you're finally going to see the bride come in for the first time in her wedding dress and it's beautiful and all this kind of stuff, right? So I'm going to pick on Mazan and Kathy because they're not here, but they might be watching. Love you guys. So here we go. All right, let's imagine we're back at their wedding and all that anticipation is building and they're standing back there at the back doors. They're about to sling them open. You're going to see Kathy for the first time. Everybody's joyful. And then they open the doors and she comes in and she's wearing a black dress and a black veil, and she's carrying black flowers. How quickly is the joy going to go out of that room? <laughs> Pretty quickly, right? Everybody's going to be like, oh, wait a second. <laughs> I thought this was a, uh, a wedding, but here we're looking like it's a funeral, you know? So, so that would be inconsistent, right? It would make no sense. A wedding is a time of celebration. It is not a time of mourning. And so Jesus is saying here, why should my bride go about mourning while I'm here? During this time of joy, he's saying the reason my disciples don't fast is because they recognize that I'm the Messiah and they know that now is a time of celebration. So how could they be mournful? This is a great and joyous occasion. But I want you to notice something else. Here's something interesting. There's an implicit question here that Jesus does not ask them that he wants them to consider. They're disciples of John, right? John has told them that Jesus is the Messiah. So this unasked question, Jesus is saying, if you actually did know that I am the Messiah, 
and you knew what that meant, and you knew what I was here to do, the real question is, why are you still fasting? You should be less concerned with why my disciples are not fasting. You should be asking yourself, why are you still fasting? Do you not truly see this as a time of celebration? You see, it was inconsistent. You don't combine something sad and mournful with something joyous. But there was another inconsistency. It was the fasting of the Pharisees in general, right? Because their fasting was a total contradiction. Again, fasting, it was for a time of mourning and sorrow. But here's my question to you, church. Were the Pharisees mourning and sorrowful while they were fasting? No. Do you remember earlier this year we were in the Sermon on the Mount and Jesus specifically addressed the Pharisees in their fasting? Matthew chapter 6, he said, hey, don't be like the Pharisees and, and fast like they fast because when they fast, they like to twist their faces up and look all sad and sorrowful and they're doing it so that they can be praised by other people. And he says, don't be like them. So the Pharisees, when they would go about, you know, fasting, they'd just, oh, oh, my stomach, it hurts. Oh, brother, what's wrong? What's going on? He says, oh, I'm just, just fasting. It's what you do when you're holy, righteous, like, but it's, it's a burden, but you know, it's what you have to do. And so they would get all these, uh, they would get attention from all these people and people would look at them and they'd see them fasting and go, wow, look at that guy. He is truly holy. He is righteous. Look at him. And so it was a big show. It was a total walking contradiction. They didn't actually feel what they were showing outwardly. And not just that. You know why they picked Mondays and Thursdays to be their two days to fast? It's because those were the two days when the most people were out around town and in the marketplace. In other words, it was the best time for an audience. And so they said, okay, when, when are the streets the busiest? Mondays and Thursdays. Those are going to be our fasting days. And they just go, oh, drawing attention to themselves. And so Jesus says, hey, listen, you've got to learn to, to, to understand that something outward needs to match something inward. If it's a joyful occasion, you don't go about mourning. And if you are going to go about mourning and display that to everybody, you need to actually feel it on the inside. He says, you, it's not just about the things that you're doing. It's about what's actually going on in your heart And so that's what he wanted them to know. And he goes on to explain that further. Look at verses 16 and 17. I mean, that's the whole point of this. He says, No one puts a piece of unshrunk cloth on an old garment. For the patch tears away from the garment, and a worse tear is made. Neither is new wine put into old wineskins. If it is, the skins burst, and the wine is spilled, and the skins are destroyed. But new wine is put into fresh wineskins, and so both are preserved. What's he talking about? (laughs) He uses a lot of images, right? So imagine you've got an old shirt. Let's say it's your favorite shirt and it's old, it's worn out. It's got a hole in it like plenty of mine do. And so you want to keep your old shirt for a little longer. So what you do is you go and you measure the exact dimensions of that hole and you get a piece of new fabric and you cut out the fabric to the exact dimensions, go back to the hole, sew it on there. You're thinking all is well, right? Wrong. Because what's going to happen is, as soon as you wash that shirt, the new fabric is going to shrink. But the old fabric has already done all the shrinking it's going to do. And so the new fabric is going to pull on the hole, and it's going to make the hole even worse than it was before. In the same way, these, these old wineskins, they were really brittle and fragile. But new wine still has to ferment. 
And when wine ferments, it releases these gases and causes expansion and things like that. So if you put new wine in old wineskins, once it starts fermenting and releasing those gases, it's going to explode the old wineskins. You lose everything. So what is Jesus saying here? What's the whole point of this? He's saying something new doesn't go with something old. You can't combine the two like that. He's saying he didn't just come to put a patch on an old religious brittle system. He didn't just come to make people new and then put them back into an old religious brittle system. He's saying, I am bringing something radically new. I'm bringing about something entirely new. You've got to have new wine and new wineskins. You don't combine something old with something new. But notice this, church. The disciples of John are frustrated. And the reason they're frustrated is because they're doing something and the Pharisees are doing something and they think that it's expected of everybody, but everybody's not doing the thing that they do. And I don't know if you've ever been there, but that's incredibly frustrating, right? I mean, imagine that you've worked hard for something and you've followed all the steps and you've I've worked myself up the corporate ladder. I've done everything I'm supposed to do. I've attended work. I've put in for promotion, all this kind of stuff. And then someone, a nephew or something, gets promoted ahead of you and you go, well, hold on a second. That's not fair. I did all the things. I followed all the steps. I should be the one who gets promoted. I mean, think about it within the religious system. They're saying, hey, this isn't fair that the disciples don't have to fast like we do because we have to fast. We have to fast Mondays. We have to fast Thursdays. We have to fast on the Day of Atonement. We have to do all these sorts of religious things, and we're exhausted, so why don't they have to do what we have to do? And Jesus says, because that way has gone. <laughs> the time's passing away. And this is what I want you to understand here. Something important, one of the key differences, the old way of religion is exhausting. And the new way of kingdom righteousness is invigorating. The old way of religion, it is exhausting. But the new way of kingdom righteousness, it is invigorating. See, I was... a Growing up, I was never really big on, on video games. Like, I played them sometimes, but I was normally out in the woods causing trouble. So, But there was a, a skateboard game. Don't everybody look at my mom like she's going to verify that. Nobody be looking over there, okay? That's <laughs> the problem with having your mom here. <laughs> but there was this one game I liked to play. It was, it was a skateboard game. And on the skateboard game, there was this progress bar in one of the corners of the game. And here's the thing about that progress bar. Here's what you had to do. Throughout the game, you would just have to be landing tricks constantly and doing cool tricks, and you'd get points, and then those points would start to fill up that progress bar, and then once it was completely full, you would unlock your special move or whatever it was, right? Now, here's the annoying thing about that progress bar. It was always going down at a very consistent pace, and so you are having to constantly land tricks all the time just to keep that thing trying to go up, let alone from coming back down. So you're just constantly landing tricks one after the other, after the other, after the other. And then the most annoying thing about that progress bar is if you messed up even once and didn't land a trick or you failed at something, you'd lose all your progress and the bar would go back to zero and you had to start again. And I was thinking about that because isn't that exactly how religion feels sometimes? exhausting like that? I mean, there are so many people in our world today who are just like the Pharisees and they treat their entire relationship with God just like that progress bar. One day you ask them, hey, how's your relationship with God? And they say, it's great. 
God loves me, and I know that he loves me, and he is pleased with me, and I know that he's pleased with me. You say, well, how can you know that? Because I haven't missed church in a month. Because I've only been listening to his radio. Because I made sure to give extra tithe this week at church. Because I wore a new suit to church and I looked very sharp. Because I started volunteering at church. Because I started going to to gospel groups. I started doing all these things. And since I've started doing all these things, I know that God must love me and be pleased with me. Because look at all the stuff I'm doing. But then let me ask you this. What happens when they do mess up? What happens when they snap at someone and lose their temper? What, what happens when they, they sin again? Well, just like that progress bar, it goes back to zero, doesn't it? And they feel like, there's no way God could love me. I've lost it. You ask them, hey, how's your relationship with God? You say, I don't even know if I am a Christian. I don't know if God loves me at all. I don't know if I'm saved at all. Well, why? What would make you think that? Because I messed up again. I failed at something. I've sinned again. I've lost my temper. They lose everything. And so listen to me, folks. They feel like they have to start doing a bunch of stuff in order to earn God's love and favor again. And that is exhausting, is it not? It's like being a donkey and having that carrot held out in front of you. You're always pursuing it, but you're never going to reach it. It's like being a hamster, a hamster in a wheel. You're just constantly running, but you're never actually making any progress. That is religion, and it is exhausting. And so Jesus comes and he says, listen, I have a new way of living out the faith. I have a new way of relating to God. He says, what if I told you that God's love isn't something to be earned, but something to be received through faith? And he goes on, he says, well, what if I told you that once you do receive the love of God through faith in me, you'll never lose that love, ever. Not even when you're struggling, not when you mess up, not when you're not perfect. That once the Father has set his love on you, you will never be one moment without it. Now that sounds way better, does it not? That sounds invigorating, does it not? That sounds freeing and life-giving to think that you don't have to try to earn God's love. You don't have to try to merit God's favor, His love, or His salvation. That if you trust in the Son, you receive that love through faith in Him. And then God's love for you is never based on you. So how could you mess it up? God's love for you is based on His satisfaction with Jesus. And God is always satisfied with Jesus. So if you're a Christian, God's love for you is not based on you. So how could you possibly mess it up? That is so freeing. That, that breaks the bonds of legalism and traditionalism. Jesus is saying to us here, listen, you've got to stop thinking about your relationship with God in terms of the things that you do. And start thinking about your relationship with God in terms of the heart, in terms of the inner person, because that's what ultimately matters. The old way, it focuses on your outward actions, but the new way, it focuses on your heart. And that's what we have to understand, because too often, not only do we judge ourselves by the religious things that we do, but we judge others by the religious things that they do, and we totally neglect the heart, don't we? You look at someone, you go, well, look at him. He wears a suit every single Sunday with a tie. I mean, he, he, and he's here on Sundays. He must be a good person. 
I've seen him giving when the plate goes around and he, he gives every single week. He must be a good person. I, I see that he's at every, every, every service when the door is open. He must be a, a good person. I see that he's done this and he's done that. And we look at these people, church, and we say they must be good people because look at all the religious stuff they do. But listen to me. What does it matter if they do a bunch of religious stuff if they go home and they treat their family like garbage? What does it matter if he's wearing a suit to work if he doesn't actually love his wife? What does it matter if he's he's dressing up and coming here every single Sunday and he's participating in all this kind of stuff and he looks like the world's greatest religious person if he doesn't actually love his children, if he's not teaching them about Jesus, if he's not prioritizing his wife and his family? What does it matter if his heart is dead and sinful? None of the outward stuff matters. Do we get that? We can't judge our relationship or other people's relationship with God based on all the external outward things that they do because those things don't ultimately matter. What matters is, is your heart right with Jesus? If your heart's not right with Jesus, it doesn't matter how religious you are. That's why Jesus says you need new wine for new wineskins. And then watch this, something interesting that he does here. All throughout the book of Matthew, Jesus has followed the same pattern. The first thing he does is he will teach on a subject. And then immediately after, he demonstrates what he just taught. And that's why these two healing stories are ultimately here. Jesus just taught something. And now he's going to demonstrate that thing. So you know the story. Uh, We're not going to read everything again. But uh, Jesus, right as he's teaching this, a ruler comes to him. The ruler's name is Jairus. We learn that from Mark's account. Mark also tells us that Jairus was a leader or a ruler in the synagogue, which means he is real high up within Judaism, right? And so Jairus comes to Jesus and he he says, hey, listen, my daughter, my 12-year-old daughter, she's sick and she's going to die. I need you to come help her. And Jesus says, of course, I'll come help her. And so they go. Well, what happens? As they're on their way, a woman approaches Jesus who has been hemorrhaging blood for how many years? 12. How old was the daughter? Is there significance to that? Submit a question. We'll see. Anyways, don't have time to cover that right now. But a woman who's been bleeding for 12 years approaches Jesus, and she's in need of healing. And and, and listen, this is a a bad situation because if her situation is not cured, it is going to lead to her death. And, And what makes it worse for her is that because she has been bleeding for 12 years, she has been deemed ceremonially unclean. Which means for 12 years, she has been excluded from worship in the temple. She couldn't gather with the people of God to worship. It means for 12 years, she had been isolated and alone. For 12 years, she had been an outcast. And not only that, but Mark's account tells us that she had drained all of her financial resources, paying doctors to try to heal her, and she had only gotten worse. So don't miss this, church. Her illness has cost her everything. It's cost her her relationships, her ability to worship, her finances, her health, everything. But she has heard about Jesus. And she's heard that he can heal people. Even those people who are thought to be unhealable, like a leper. And so she fully believes in her heart that if she can just reach out and touch him, even just the hem of his garment, that she would be healed. And that's exactly what happens. By faith, she pursues Jesus. She reaches out and touches his garment, and she 
is healed. But the Bible immediately moves on from that, right? Like, you're reading this and there's no time to even rejoice because the Bible just keeps going. And you see that the servants of Jairus come and they tell him, hey, listen, your daughter's died. Devastating news, right? Your daughter has just died. Don't bother with Jesus anymore. You put all your hope in Jesus. You trusted him. You thought he was going to do something for you, but that thing didn't happen, and now your daughter is dead, so don't even have anything to do with him anymore. And Jesus looks at Jairus and he says, don't be afraid. Only believe. And so he goes to Jairus' house. He goes right into the little girl's room, reaches down, grabs her hand, and raises her back to life. And that's amazing, is it not? These two stories demonstrate Jesus' power to heal, his power over death, his sovereignty over disease and death, all that kind of stuff. But the question we should be asking is, well, how do these two stories relate to what Jesus was teaching John's disciples? How does it relate? How does it demonstrate what he taught? Something you need to catch here if you're trying to find that connection, okay? Okay. There are two big no-nos that happened in the passage that are our connection. The first big no-no that happened is that Jesus was touched by a woman who was bleeding. That was a big no-no, right? Because according to the old religious system of Judaism, their whole old system, it said that you were not to touch someone who was bleeding or be touched by someone who was bleeding or else you would become ceremonially unclean. And so that was a big no-no. Jesus was not supposed to do that. The other big no-no that happened was that Jesus touched a dead girl. Again, according to the old system, you weren't even supposed to be under the same roof as a dead person, let alone touch a dead person, or else you too would become ceremonially unclean. And so don't, don't miss what would have happened here. Anybody who held to the old way of doing things and to the old system would have left these two women alone, left them to suffer their fate. And let me ask you this, church, what would have happened to both of these women had Jesus not intervened in their lives? They would have died, right? The bleeding woman would have eventually died. The little girl who died would have stayed dead. And so if you hold to the old way, it would have resulted in their deaths. And so Jesus demonstrates what his new way looks like. He leads with mercy. He brings this new wine that is bursting the seams of their old religious traditions. Notice how he leads with mercy. Jesus doesn't lead with strict regulations and rules and things like that. He sees people who are in need and he leads with his heart. Jesus is saying that his new way is not going to be one in which the desperate and the dying are left to die alone for the sake of some traditions and for some rules. No, he sees that souls are on the line and Jesus is the ultimate soul winner, is he not? So here's what I want you to understand. The old way, it leads to death. And the new way leads to life. The old way, it leads to death. But the new way leads to life. You see, there are two women in this passage, but there's only one need. And I want you to see something here. There's one need, and religion was absolutely powerless to save them. Do we see that? 
If you followed the old religious system and traditions, they would have died. It could do nothing. Religion would have left them to die alone. But Jesus demonstrates true kingdom righteousness by saving them and restoring them to life. He shows that he is the doctor for the sick. Remember what he told the Pharisees? He says it's not those who are well who need a physician, but those who are sick. He shows that he's the doctor for the sick. He shows what it looks like to prioritize mercy over sacrifice. Do you remember what he told the Pharisees? Go and learn what this means. I desire mercy, not sacrifice. He shows that the old is passing away and the new has come. And most of all, church, don't miss this. He shows that the bridegroom has come for his bride. And he will not leave her on her own. You see, these two women with their afflictions, ultimately they serve as an illustration for sin, don't they? And the problem of sin in our world. And it's a universal problem. And if it's a problem that's not dealt with, it will lead to death, will it not? Eternal death. It's a problem that every person in this room faces today. And I want you to hear me say this. Religion can do nothing to save you from the problem of sin in your life. Do we understand that, church? I wish more people in our world knew this. I've met too many people in my life who know that they have sin in their life. Who know that they're not living how Jesus wants them to live. Who know that they're not doing the things that Jesus wants them to do. Who know that they are far from God. Who know that they need to get close to God. And so what they do is they run to religion for the cure. They start going to church occasionally. They wear nice clothes when they go to church. They, they, they try to buy a Bible. They, they start listening to Christian music. They, they come to church, they listen to a little sermon, and they think everything is fixed in their lives because they went to church. They get a little religion in their routine, and they think everything has changed, everything's good, my problem with sin is fixed now. And listen to me, those are some good things to do. I'm not denying that, but they are powerless to save you from your sin. You think that going to church is... Is what's going to ultimately save you. Please listen to me here. Countless people who spent every single Sunday in church will also spend an eternity in hell. Because coming to this place cannot save you. You can try the old way if you want. You ask yourself this morning, how can I know, pastor, if I'm truly saved? How can I know if I'm right with God? What are you hoping in? What are you trusting in? What gives you confidence? I ask every single one of you this morning, do you know if you're a Christian? Search your heart right now and ask yourself, what gives me confidence that I'm a Christian? And you can do the old way. You can put all your hope and confidence in the fact that you're a member of a church. Good for you. You can put all your hope in the fact that you were baptized. Good for you. You can put all your hope in the fact that you make it here most Sundays. Good for you. You dress up. You serve. You're a volunteer. You're a deacon. You do this. You do that. Good for you. But unless you have Jesus, that old way will send you straight to hell. None of it matters without Jesus. Nothing we do here matters without Jesus. Do we understand this, church? He is all that matters. It's not the fact that you're a member. It's not the fact that you've been here since you're 12. It's not the fact that you've been baptized. You prayed a prayer after a preacher. You filled out a card. You dressed nice. You served. None of it matters. 
unless you have Jesus. Because that's the only thing that is going to matter on that last day, isn't it? When God stands, when you stand before God on Judgment Day, He's not going to look at your church attendance and all these other things. He's going to ask you one question and one question only. Do you know Jesus? Have you trusted in Jesus? And if your answer is no, He's going to say, I never knew you. (laughs) Depart from me. You don't need to run to religion for the cure. You need to run to Jesus. Like the bleeding woman in this passage, you need to reach out to Him for healing. Like the dead girl in this passage, you need Him to come and raise you back to new life. You need to see Jesus as the friend of sinners, as the doctor for the sick. You need to see that Jesus is full of love and mercy. And listen to me, I don't care if you're visiting here, if you're a member, whatever else, listen to me. He is ready to meet you right where you're at. And save you. Doesn't matter how big your mess is. Doesn't matter if you're like the woman who's been bleeding for 12 years. Doesn't matter if you're dying and nearing death. Whatever your situation is, Jesus is ready to meet you right where you're at and save you. You need to see that He is the loving bridegroom who has come for His bride. And so, no, church, you, you need to understand something this morning. If you will see Jesus for who he truly is and repent of your sins and put every bit of your hope and your trust for salvation in him, he will redeem you. He will make you truly righteous. And that's ultimately what matters. So so no, Jesus did not come to make people more religious. He came to make us truly righteous and praise God for that. The old way is gone. And praise the Lord, this new way has come. Amen.